Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. Today's topic is the 2017 Boise River flooding, and we have three guest speakers, Ron Abramovich, uh, Mary Melima, and then Steve Sweet. And Ron is uh, is with the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service, and he's the guy that, that gets to go out and do the measurements of the snow. So we're going to start up high. We're going to start high in the elevations. Last winter, 2016, winter 2017, uh, where we had near record snowfall. Then we're going to work our way down into the reservoir system that we have here in Boise, and Mary's going to talk about that and the management and some of the challenges that she faced this year. And then we're going to get down into the river itself below the, where the dams are, and Steve Sweet's going to talk about the, the, the challenges and, and some of the uh, damage and, and, and really issues that occurred down in the, in the lower Boise. So with that... I will turn it over to Ron, who will give the first presentation. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. And uh, what I wanted to do, talk about was the weather patterns last uh, last year and what led to the last winter's snowpack as well, too. And then, like we talked about the snowpack near record, explain that a little bit. If we go back to the winter before, we talk about the El Nino year. It was one of the strongest El Ninos in years. And uh, we also had the blog. Gave us a little drier winters the previous two years. And then last year, it kind of turned into a slight La Nina. You can see the cooler temperatures along the equator, and the warmth went away, and it cooled off uh, in the Pacific Ocean, and a little warmth here as well, too. So that kind of set the stage for, for last winter. And in the middle of the winter, the atmospheric rivers. There was 45 of them that hit the West Coast last year. I, don't, I have no idea what normal is. <laughs> but if you look at them, three extremes, 12 strong, 20 moderate, one time I heard California needs five, or are they going to average a five? And three of them bring 80% of the moisture to California. So you're talking the whole West Coast getting 45. And so the take-home point here is when you go from a strong El Nino to the following year, the oceans and atmosphere have a lot of energy to get rid of, and that's what happened. So about half the time we have a, a good wet year following a, str- a strong El Nino. And that's uh, the trend that was setting up for last year even uh, going into the fall. So now if we just jump into calendar or water year, here's October, and we start off the new water year with record high precipitation. I think amounts are pushing a two to three to five inches at normal during the month of October. So what this did was prime the soils. After the dry summer, we have the fires. We know the soil moisture is up. And actually by uh, November, we're at record high stream flow for the south fork of the Boise River at new, new record highs. Usually you talk about what happens in Russia at the end of November, but last year they got talking about it at the beginning. This is from uh, November 4th, and Siberia is being clobbered with snow that already that could mean a harsher U.S. winter ahead. And who would have thought that Russia would be able to influence our winter last year? <laughs> so, but. <laughs> and even here, I highlighted here too, this is likely the greatest extent of snow cover since 1999. Then uh, December and January, what were you guys doing every day you went to work or when you were retired? <laughs> Shoveling that snow. This is really interesting graph because uh, over in the Weezer Payette, we only have a few low elevation sites. Uh, most of our sites are, we say, between six and 8,000 feet because that's where most of our runoff comes from. Uh, in the Weezer, there's a few lower sites below 5,000 feet, and they're pushing 400% of normal. 
but the higher sites here are just normal. So I'm kind of being a cheerleader. No, we need more snow in the mounds. There's not enough up there. And what happened, this is what set the stage, December, January, this includes February, but it was below normal temperatures that kept the snow on the valley floor. So it didn't warm up like we're, we had seen in the past where it'd snow one day and melt another day. We had colder temperatures so that the snow stayed there as well too. And then February, and this is what changed the outlook for, for last year. So our precipitation at the snow tail sites was five times normal. We had to bump the scale here to greater than 500% of normal in, in central Idaho. And you look at the snow water content, it increases 18 inches of water in, in the Bigwood Basin. They had 18 inches of water in the snowpack, and they doubled that just in the month of February. So that's how intense uh, February was. Usually these are numbers we see more in northern Idaho rather than central Idaho. But if you go to our neighboring basins, a big wood, uh, we can see here, they're right at, at near record, at record high, basically, on the short-term uh, snow tail sites. And based on the longer-term data, they were at record high. The message is telling me that there's a greater snowpack up in the south fork of the Boise Basin and, and the Bigwood Basin. Maybe not in the Weezer and the Payette side of the Boise, but that's where more of the snow is, more toward the Bigwood Basin side. So by early May, uh, we were looking at record high precipitation. Uh, record wettest is the dark green here throughout parts of the pockets of the uh, Pacific Northwest and central Idaho. And our snow tail sites for the Boise were, were right at record high as well, too, since 1980s. So everything's kind of still adding up that we've had a wet year. So we kind of talked about the ocean conditions the past year, soil moisture, the February rains, fall rains, the valley mountain snow, and the precipitation. And now it's time to plug all that into our stream flow forecast. So this is what we do starting in January. And it's a busy graph here, but each day we put another tick mark here for this daily water supply forecast. So in February, we're forecasting 120% of average, and it jumped about 200% of average uh, by the end of February. So then the, the last step is what we do is combine the forecast, which accounts for the snow and the precip and soil moisture or stream flows, basically. Combine it with the current reservoir storage to see what we're looking at for a total water supply. And we have some thresholds here. So this is uh, January 1st uh, surface water supply index. The darker areas are the, the total storage of 5 million or 500,000 acre feet for the three reservoirs in the Boise system. And here's our five exceedance forecasts. So back in January, we only had a 10% chance of having a greater than a surplus amount of 2.2 uh, kf, and a 10% chance of having shortages as well too. But yet we had all that valley snow on on the on the uh, uh, snowpack on the valley floor, so we still needed more up high. So you're laughing, Steve. What happened? <laughs> we moved to February. Uh, so we got through the month of January, the forecast went up a little bit, and basically it's a 50-50 chance of having surplus water above uh, 2.2 million acre-feet. And we're looking better at having adequate irrigation supplies by February 1st. And if we go into March now, we're comparing it to the record high years. So we're looking at 83 and 87, or 97 happened, and it was 183% of average runoff. So we're basically 90% chance or 100% chance we're going to have surplus volumes greater than this blue line that we came up with. Thanks for inviting me. My name is Mary Melema, and I'm with the Bureau of Reclamation. And um, water management and running the Boise River is pretty complex, especially in a year like 2017. I'm going to talk about the decisions and the operations that, that took place during the, the spring runoff and what we were doing while the snow was accumulating in the mountains. 
you kind of have to talk about all of this stuff independently to bring it all together, so stick with me. We have really great hindsight. We can see what happened and we know what happened. And shoot, man, that's easy. But when you're sitting there on January 1, on February 1, on March 1, March 15, and have to make decisions, and you really don't know what the weather's going to do and you don't know how the snow's going to melt, it's a lot more challenging. So I'd ask you to keep that in mind as I talk. Um, the drainage area is about 4,300 square miles. The major dams are here at Lucky Peak, which holds about 265,000 acre-feet of storage. Arrow Rock Dam, which holds about 272,000 acre-feet of storage. And Anderson Ranch on the South Fork, which holds about 413,000 acre-feet of storage. They hold about 950,000 acre-feet of storage. The elevation range is from about 3,000 to 10,600 feet. And, you know, upstream of Lucky Peak is 65% of the drainage area. To give you review on um, the primary uses on the reservoir system, you know, flood risk management, that's the big one, right? And that is all coordinated between the Bureau of Reclamation and the Corps of Engineers, Walla Walla District. So any of the decisions, you can't blame on them, you can't just blame on us, blame us both, all right? And then storage, you know, storage irrigation, I mean, that's very much a primary use. And then we've got all these other uses that, that come in, stream flow maintenance and M&I, or municipal and industrial uses of the Boise River. Runoff forecasting is answering the question of how much volume of water are we expecting from the basin that's going to run into the reservoirs. And the NRCS does their forecasting, the National Weather Service does their forecasting, and Reclamation and the Corps of Engineers also do forecasting. But we have to have one number to operate to. We recognize there could be a range, but you got to settle on something in order to make decisions. Each of our forecasts is the date through July 31st. So on January 1, we're forecasting January through July. On February 1, we're forecasting February through July, and so forth. It was the first week of February when all that snow and, and precip started to accumulate in the mountains. We were in the 118% of average. Well, you know, that's good. We're, if we're in the 80 to 120% of average forecast, usually we're like cautious about releasing water too early because we got to fill the reservoirs for the irrigators. March 1, you can see a significant jump. All of a sudden, it's up to 153% of average. And then April, 159. And then May, 174. January and February, we are way under forecasting, but, you know, we get into April, May, June, I'm not a bad forecast. The January through July run, actual runoff was 198% um, of average, and our period of record is from, from 1929 to 2017. Okay, so 2017 had the second highest volume for this period, and the, the highest was 1943. We have to operate reservoirs using our volume forecasts, our best guess on what our forecast is for runoff. And we have the guide curves or the rule, flood control rule curves. So if we are on March 1st and we're saying that we're going to have 2 million acre feet coming in between March 1 and the end of June, July, this is the highest our storage can be. And this is constantly changing because as time goes on, your volumes keep changing. You subtract every day's runoff. And on our March 1 forecast, this is how high we were supposed to be in storage, and we were actually above it. And that keeps going on. April 1, well, after April 1, things are looking pretty grim, right? And this is what 
people were talking about, oh, shoot, you don't have near enough room in the reservoirs. You should be releasing a lot more water. And they're right. We didn't have enough room in the reservoirs because the guide curve says that we were supposed to have this. This is where our storage should have been, and we were way up here. I lost a lot of sleep over this. <laughs> I guarantee you, and so did my staff. We lost a lot of sleep over this and spent untold hours on weekends, nights, days, looking at this stuff, trying to figure out you know, how we're going to handle this and what's going to happen. So not only is the volume important, but the shape of the, what we call is the shape of the runoff, which means did it come early, did it come late? And that was weird this year. When we look at 2017, you can see that we had all that low elevation snow that we don't really measure at the snow tell sites or account for very much in our volume forecast. And so those guide curves, those rule curves that I showed you before, they're assuming that you have kind of a normal type runoff shape, which was not the case at all this year. So the natural flows, which are the inflows, normally the volume of water from January for, through July ranges from 460,000 acre feet to about 3 million acre feet. 2017 was 3.1 million acre feet. So that shows you that it was a very big volume runoff year. And the annual peak natural flows range from 3,000 to 35,000. And the 2017 peak flow was the third largest, and that was at 24,000. That's high. And then they estimated that in 1872 that there was inflows around 50,000. So, oh boy. I don't think they had any reservoirs, so people probably just ran for the hills. I'm not sure. You see in February we get this spike, and it's like we knew instantly that we were going to have to start increasing discharges. The problem was there was some work going on in the channel. We had to wait for people to clear out. This happens a lot in the spring. You know, we came up pretty rapidly, and flood stage is 7,000 CFS. I mean, by the 1st of March, we were there, totally there. And, you know, recognizing, well, we were doing pretty good. We were making some space, feeling pretty good. That's the line here. But then, you know, mid-March, we got this spike up to 18,000 in some years, that's your spike for the season, right? And, um, and we're like, oh boy. And so that's when, you know, we're starting to kick it up to 8,000 through town, 9,000. And, um, you know, looking at um, where we were on the rule curve, we were well above the rule curve, of course. But, but the decision is you don't cause a flood to hit the, hit the rule curve what, because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? If we would have known what would happen in the future, well, I think we would have done it this way anyway. But, um, but you don't know what's going to happen. So you don't just go ahead and push flows higher and higher that could be damaging downstream just to get to a rule curve because you don't know what's going to happen. Now, usually if we know that we're going to go to damaging flows in 9,000 and 9,500 where we, we were flirting with, they were damaging in some places, Right. But you don't go there unless you don't go higher than that unless you're pushed there by conditions. And that's why I say we lost a lot of sleep because we were worried all the time that we were going to have to go higher through town and, and cause additional damage. So really, this April period here where Ron was talking about, you know, it kind of cooled down and things settled down a little bit, that really helped us. But you see that we couldn't really make any space in the reservoirs and April 30th, you're supposed to get down to your maximum. You're supposed to be drawn down. 
And there was no way we could do it because the inflows were, were so high and continue to be high. Now, if they would have spiked in April and gone to that 24,000, I mean, I'm not sure what would have happened. Thank goodness that didn't happen. It waited till May, you know, and you see that the storage came up and we were watching it really close. And I mean, these were, these were gray hair days. I mean, honestly. So that's, that's the decision to go up to, we were in the 9,500 range, 94, 9,500 range as a max, pretty much at Glenwood. And, um, you know, we were always waiting to see what was happening with this inflow, where we were on the storage, and are we going to be able, is the snow disappearing? Are we going to be able to make it? And um, recognizing that people were starting to be impacted downstream. That was the drama going on in our office. So just in some... <laughs> so in summary, I mean, you all know 2017 was a very challenging year with large amount of precip early. And the thing is, this is still going on because our base flows actually are higher than normal, almost over all of southern Idaho. We're looking at the upper snake base flows, and we're looking at the Boise base flows. And there, that precip that we had in October and that we continued to have, even though we had a dry spring, you know, June and July and August were really dry, we're still seeing some impacts of some of those high base flows. So the reservoirs were well above the guide curve early in the season due to early runoff. We just couldn't catch up. We couldn't get back to the curve. And then um, flood damages in the city of Boise and downstream were lessened by mitigation that was performed by the emergency management community, Corps of Engineers, and other entities like Flood 10. And I mean, there was, there was the emergency operations center that was spun up in early March really did an excellent job to mitigate for all those things that were happening, like, you know, um, pit capture possibilities and, and um, you know, and we're like, phew, you know. So that's all I have. So next we're down in the river itself and somebody who was, I guess, down in the pit, so to speak, pun intended. Hi, I'm Steve Sweet with Quadrant Consulting, and I appreciate the opportunity to be before you. So just how bad was it, and just how bad might it have been? Flood 10 is a small entity formed by Department of Water Resources, 25,000 acres, goes from Plantation Golf Course down to Caldwell, 35,000 people in there, formed to help protect the citizens of Idaho from damage by high water. Generally, Flood 10 is rural, except now we're getting encroached upstream and a little bit of Boise and Garden City and Eagle and the pressure's on, the people in the green belt taking pictures, putting things out there, making agricultural people nervous and we're just trying to get through this thing. I serve as a consulting engineer on the side. been fired five or six times. It goes with the turf. So what's the job at Flood 10? We look at it, the river as a working river. Three major dams regulating flow. Nothing's natural about having businesses, parks, pathways, home sites perched on the banks and managing irrigation diversions. As much as we like to think it's a natural river, it's a controlled river, and thank God it is, or else we'd have people living a lot further back from the river than where they are. You know, this is a weird year. The first weirdness came on March 11th when I found Governor Otter 
out behind the Star Fire Hall filling sandbags. This is the same day that Jerry Brown was sitting there in California watching his dam turn into rubble, and our governor was packing his own sandbags. There was number one for weird. Two weeks later, I don't know if Brandon Hobbs is here, Brandon Hobbs, Corps of Engineers, the epitome of a government worker, calls up on a Saturday and says, we need a meeting on Sunday on the banks of the Boise River. Just as Brandon was speaking, over everybody's shoulder, looked to me like three black swans coming in. Black swans are symbolic of an unpredictable or unforeseen event, typically one with extreme consequences. But no, it was the Corps Chinook helicopters flying in. We were safe. The Army was here. That was two. A few days later, the fish left Eagle Island. Fish and Game decided that their fish were in risk of being flooded. So here's number three. Take the fish away. Then the bridges started flying off. The bridges were gone off of Plantation Island. But boy, this is a weird year. But then the topper, the topper came. Rex Berry, the water master for the Boise River. I was talking to him on April 10th. It was a rainy day. He says, that's the last thing we need, more water. (laughs) You don't hear that. You never hear irrigators saying they have enough water. This was a weird year. 101 days of flood control, of flood flows at Glenwood. There were 52 days at over 8,000. That was the one I was counting. 7,000's flood. Well, we'll go up and we'll just tippy-toe and hit 7,000 and be flood. But no, these guys went to 8,000. They were serious. What everybody says is, so what? What's it mean to me? Pit capture. What is pit capture? I want to show you a video of, that explains pit capture. Using an aspirator here, we're going to create a pit in the center of the channel. And immediately, uh, you can see, as uh, indicated by this yellow arrow, a head cut migrates upstream. And the channel is incising as this head cut moves through. By digging this pit, we've effectively increased the local slope and thus uh, the channel's capacity to move sediment. And uh, we're seeing a lot of erosion because of that. The channel is incising, and the sediment uh, from the in- created by the erosion and incision is refilling the pit. Now, a pit like this also severely disrupts sediment transport continuity and uh, a lot of sediment is entering the pit but almost none is coming out and this creates a hungry water effect downstream which causes the downstream channel to incise and blows out riffles okay pit capture but has it ever happened in the treasure valley is this chicken little is is this the end of the world are we we trying to scare everybody let's just kind of weave a scenario this picture is the head of Eagle Island, there's a sewer treatment plant. It used to be called a sewer treatment plant. It's now a water reuse facility. We're understanding that it's worth more, it's, it's worth something to us of, of quite a bit of value. Right here are some home sites on the head of Eagle Island. Okay, so there's the fiscal bearings for you. 374 homes that the county assesses at $188 million of value for those homes. $300 million treatment plant. That's $500 million sitting out there at the head of Eagle Island. What's FEMA say? What do we need to worry about? FEMA, here's the same map. 
FEMA says, okay, if you're in the orange, there's a 0.2% chance, a 500-year flood, a 0.2% chance of getting wet. If you're in the blue, the 1% chance. There's a one chance every year in 100 that you're going to get wet. I mean, compare that to the lottery where it's 178 million to one. Getting wet in the floods a lot better odds. Red and blue stripes, that's the floodway. Stay out of it. Nothing going on there. We ran 9,500 CFS past Glenwood. When we were out there with the Corps, we picked up the Corps' model and said, ah, let's run the model at 10,000 CFS and see what happens. But I'm going to show you a model of when you put 10,000 CFS in the Boise River and then throw a curb. Let's, let's throw a pit capture in there. This model shows the Boise River in blue breaking into the pits and starting to fill the pit. Taking 10,000 CFS and you'd fill those pits in a in a few hours by theory, but probably a day, and then it goes back to the South Channel. South Channel can't take 10,000 CFS, so it pushes it across the head of Eagle Island trying to put some of the water back into the North Channel. So you saw the FEMA line up. That's on the left, what they think is going to get wet at a 16,600 CFS flow. On the right is what we said if things blow up and you have a pit capture, what could it get, be expected to get wet at a 10,000 CFS flow? There's quite a difference out there. But then again, it didn't happen. So what's a big deal? Flood 10 looks at it as it's not a matter of if, it's when. If you leave the situation at the head of Eagle Island and it continues to have some of these big runoff events, we could expect to see areas wet that we hadn't anticipated. Again, sky is falling, the sky is falling. It didn't happen. Okay, let's go downriver. This photo was April Fool's Day of 2016. Here's the Boise River on the bottom right, arcing up and around and flowing down one main channel going under Highway 16. Here's a rock pit. It was dug 2005 to help build Highway 16. Here's April 4th, 8,080 CFS where the Boise River is all over this area out here, and it looks like it's going into that pit. It was going into that pit, and then it's just scattering, and it's all over the ground out there. Four gravel mines, three of them ended up being wet. That's a pit capture. We have had a pit capture. Now, June 29th, this year, 4,000 CFS at Glenwood in this day, and there's still water in the pit. The water is there. It won't go away. August 14th, we went out and put our drone up, flew around, threw a young engineer out in the river and got him tipped over. But, but he measured, and we actually measured 330 CFS in the Boise River below Linder Road. 43 CFS was heading down the old channel. 290 was heading into the pit. Upstream, the river's 200 feet wide, 8 feet deep. It's a big trough. River's going through there. It's coming into a pit, and it's just wandering around there today. It's going someplace. It doesn't know where it's going to go. It's either going to head back to the river in this spot here, eventually dig another trough. There's fifty to 100,000 yards of gravel that's got to move out of the way to, to get the river there. Or if it takes this route down here, 300,000 yards of gravel, and, and it's just length times depth times width. Who's counting on how much gravel 
is going to be put into the floodplain. What's that going to do to people that live alongside? So what's going to happen and when? Don't know. Stay tuned. Thank you. What are the lessons learned from this year? And are our averages really average anymore? What did we learn? Uh, well, when Mary was talking, I, what I learned is uh, it wasn't just the Treasure Valley that had the same situ- had this problems like last year. So Salmon Falls got a bonus runoff in February as well, too. They had to deal with it. Oakley Reservoir, Magic, they were the same way. So all these other reservoirs across the state had to release quite a bit of water and had to deal with the potential for flooding as well, too. So I learned, I don't know if I should be more vocal or not, if I know what's going to happen in the future, because you don't always know, like Mary said as well, too. It's going to be interesting next year. The one graph I showed, and Mary mentioned, too, about how high the base flow is right now compared to a year ago, and their carryover is tremendous as well, too. Salmon Falls is set for next year, so they're already thinking about the year after. So I wasn't sure which year we were talking about, Steve. If, if next year is like this year, then we'll talk about the year after. And so we, maybe we're back in a wet cycle. So you have to use the data, the forecast, the information you have to stay on your toes to see what's happening out there. As far as what we've learned, I mean, we're in a reaction mode because we have pressure to fill the reservoirs. Primary objective is not to flood people, but you also have to consider storing the water for the uses later in the summer. So one commitment that we've made is like we've reached out to the irrigation community, we've worked, reached out to the city of Boise, we've reached out to other entities along this, along the Boise River. We've told them, hey, don't expect that we're going to keep minimum flows through the city of Boise until March one. I mean, we've got high carryover, and the conditions are such we may have to go. Higher January 1, maybe mid-December. So if you've got in-channel work to do, don't plan on having an extended period of time to work on that stuff. So that's all I know what to say. Thanks for tuning in to Building a Greener Idaho. Keep the conversation going on social media and at buildingagreeneridaho.org. And join us Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening.